So would you turn, please, to uh, Exodus? I'm going to read the last verse of Exodus chapter 31, and then all of chapter 32. And it wasn't really difficult to put a title on the study for this evening. The Great Apostasy uh, is what I've called it, and you'll see why um, as we read this, this passage. So Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone, inscribed by the finger of God. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your, the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with your great power and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. 
Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattering it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told him, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Amen. This, this is our penultimate study in the book of Exodus. And I think it's fair to say that not only have we reached the low point of the book of Exodus, but we have also reached one of the lowest points in Israel's entire history. And even if we only have a sort of very basic Sunday school familiarity with the story of Israel's worship of the golden calf, we're gobsmacked but at how quickly and completely the people reneged on their covenant commitment to the Lord. And it may just be that as we progress through our study this evening, we'll discover that what happened all those centuries ago with Israel 
is not without its parallels in our own day. So I want to focus on three areas tonight. Number one, the sin of the people. Number two, the intercession of Moses. And number three, the actions of the Levites. So the sin of the people. There's a couple of things that we need to understand about Israel's sin. What it was, its, its substance, and also what lay behind it, its motivation. Israel's sin was one of covenant unfaithfulness. They broke the terms of the covenant that they had so enthusiastically embraced. And they did so even before Moses descended the mountain, bearing the covenant document itself, the tablets of law. Indeed, through their actions in manufacturing the golden calf, Israel simultaneously broke the first three commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol or image. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord. You're going to see that as well. So the people tore up the covenant through which they had pledged their exclusive loyalty to the Lord. And to comprehend the enormity of Israel's offense, here's what we need to appreciate. God's invitation to Israel to be his treasured possession, his special people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That has always been understood by the Jewish people as God's marriage proposal. You see, God was pledging himself to be faithful to them as his special people, his precious people. So Sinai is in effect God's marriage proposal to Israel. So what happens when Israel turns to worship the golden calf is always interpreted in the Bible as an act of spiritual adultery. And indeed, if, if we try to put it, to understand it, in its historical context, we could say that it's the spiritual equivalent of a bride committing adultery on her wedding night. We need to feel the weight of Israel's sin and the exposure of the human heart that it actually gives as well. But what lay behind Israel's outrageous unfaithfulness. You know, we, we need to sort of deconstruct Israel's disobedience. And I suggest 
that in the text we can identify two fundamental factors which contributed to Israel's apostasy. First, we have Israel's failure to believe, to trust, to hold on to Moses' promise to return. Moses had been clear as to what the program was to be in his absence when he was up the mountain in the presence of God. Exodus 24 verse 14, he said to the elders, wait here for us, because Joshua was with him, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. But listen to Israel approaching Aaron in Exodus 32 verse 1. Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Israel's faithfulness could not even see out the period of time in which Moses was invisible to them up the mountain in the presence of God. Sad to say, that same failure to believe has simply been replayed in Christendom over the past two millennia. Jesus Christ, the true, the, the ultimate mediator between God and men, has disappeared from view, having entered into the presence of God. But he left his people the clearest of promises that he would return and that he would complete his people's salvation and that he would judge the world in righteousness. But what has happened? You can't believe that. Jesus isn't actually coming back into our world, stepping again into human history. You can't take that literally. You know, if you understand, that's such a crude, unsophisticated, simplistic, childish, embarrassing way to understand what Jesus said. And what lies at the heart of such thinking is the rank refusal to take Jesus at his word and to believe what the Bible teaches. So one of the contributing factors to Israel's apostasy was their failure to trust in the word the promise of their deliverer and mediator with God. But a second motivating factor was the people's desire for a substitute God. I hasten to add, there is nothing new under the sun. What was going on in the nation's psyche that resulted in them removing their earrings so that they could fashion gods or a god 
to go before them. You know, that takes some unpacking and explaining, doesn't it? Let me just say something about the terminology here. Did Israel ask Aaron to manufacture gods for them? And you say, well, that's what the text says. And at one level, that is correct. Because the word that's used here, you may be familiar with it, it's the word Elohim, which is a plural, usually translated gods. But the complicating factor is that it can be used with singular intention. You'll notice that Aaron only fashions one idol, and the people are satisfied with that. And even more telling is what is recorded in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, this is very important, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Block capitals. Yahweh. You see, Israel was quite content to preserve the correct vocabulary used for God. They maintained the ritual of sacrifice and offerings made to him. They had the same personnel in place leading their worship. All that could stay just so long as they were able to switch the identity of the God they were worshipping. Again, I'll leave it to you to see If you can draw a straight line between that and modern Christendom with its apostate worship. And if you break it down to its most fundamental level, you would have to say that Israel deified its earrings. It sounds absolutely absurd, and it is. But this is what happens when you turn away from the only true focus of worship. You start worshipping something else. You come up with a substitute God. Israel rejected the true God and replaced him with an alternative provider of fulfillment and guidance and protection. The golden calf represented Israel's replacement God who would go before them. Wonderful, we're not on YouTube. Could somebody go up before I turn into Saul on the Damascus Road? Uh, I would have had this just last that out. I'd have been like, do you remember Kung Fu? Grasshopper, I'd have been like that at the end of the night. Um, so yes, The golden calf represented Israel's replacement God who would go before them, but on their terms. So the Israelites did something that countless millions continue to do in our world today. They took the most valuable thing that they had, now that the true God was out of the equation, They took their golden earrings, their treasure, and they made a god out of it. 
They were saying that this is now what we'll aim at in life. This is what we'll follow. This is what we'll live for. This is what will define us. This is what will bring us fulfillment. This is what we'll worship. Israel turned from the true God to a God of their own making. And what an accommodating God the golden calf was. The word used indicates that this was a bull calf. That would be an animal up to the age of three years. And the choice of a young bull is not coincidental. It was a common symbol of sexual potency in the ancient world. And it set the direction of worship for disobedient Israel. Idolatry, the worship of a substitute God, and immorality are frequent bedfellows, pun intended. What do we read? Well, as soon as the sacrifices were offered, the religious bit, the people got up to indulge in revelry, verse 6. And it's not innocent singing and dancing that is referred to in verse 18 and 19. The people were, quote, running wild and were out of control, verse 25. So much so, in fact, that they became a laughing stock to their enemies. Isn't it interesting to observe how often we witness someone turning away from following the true God, citing whatever reason for their decision, and the next thing we hear is of their involvement in a relationship that is illegitimate and immoral in the eyes of the God they've just deserted. Israel found in the golden calf the accommodating God that they were looking for. One who would indulge and who would legitimize their sin. One final comment on the absurdity of the earrings. Where did Israel, that slave nation, get their golden earrings from in the first place? The answer is, of course, that God had given them to them when they left Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians as God gave them not only some deserved back pay, but because he had something else in mind for this treasure. Something truly wonderful, as we will see in our final study. But we see the offensiveness of Israel's sin in this. They took what they received from God to manufacture a replacement for God. Idolatry is a heinous sin in the sight of God. And we ask ourselves, how could Israel ever survive such an outbreak of apostasy. And that brings us to our second area, the sin of the people, 
the intercession of Moses. It isn't actually overstating things to say that the nation owed its continued existence to the intercessions of Moses. And I say intercessions because there were actually two stages to it. If you read the chapter carefully, in verses 7 to 14, Moses intercedes for the people while on the mountain. As soon as the Lord tells him what the people are doing. But then in verse 15 to 35, Moses returns up the mountain, having come down and dealt with the people's sin on the ground. And in both episodes, we see the utter devotion of Moses to his people. And surely it points us forward to our mediator and representative in the presence of God who will not be separated from his people. So stage one is verse 7 to 14, and this is marvelous. Some things just stand out for comment. Did you catch the offer that God made to Moses in verse 10? God told Moses to leave him alone in his anger, from which he would then proceed to destroy the people. And then he would reboot his program by making a great nation from Moses himself. Did you catch that? I'll make a great nation of you. You know, we, we really do need to pause there and let that sink in. Just to think of the offer that God made to Moses. It's staggering. And perhaps it's, it's seductive. He could become the new starting point. He could be the fountainhead in the next phase of redemptive history. But Moses declined. And he stated the grounds upon which he did so. And upon which he made his appeal to God to spare the nation and to continue with them. They were, Moses said, his people, God's people. And there is, you know, there's really significant phrases in this exchange between the Lord and Moses you need to see this. Verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. How does Moses reply to that? Verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt? Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. And then how wonderful it is to read verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring 
on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses reminded the Lord that the Israelites were the people whom he had redeemed from Egypt. But he went further still. Moses rooted his intercessions for the people in his concern for the glory of God, for God's reputation. Verse 12, you know, why should the Egyptians say, you just brought them out to destroy them? And he also rooted his intercessions in his confidence in the faithfulness of God. God's promises. Verse 13. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self. I'll make your descendants as numerous and I'll bring them into the land. I say it reverently. But those were arguments. Those were appeals that God yielded to. When he heard them. But listen now to these wonderful words. From the Apostle Paul. Romans 8. 33 to 34. Who will bring any charge. Against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns. No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Or listen to the Apostle John. 1 John 2, 1-2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. It really is the most wonderful thing to have a God-provided mediator like that. But to return to Moses, remember that his first act of intercession happened while Moses was on the mountain with God. As yet he had not returned to the camp and seen for himself Israel's act of adultery. That comes in verses 15 to 34, stage 2. And in an act of huge symbolism, Moses broke the law tablets, for that is what Israel had done with the covenant That the stone tablets contain. (coughs) Moses ordered the immediate destruction of the golden calf. He had it burned and ground to powder. Which the people were then forced to drink. They would literally taste the bitterness of their idolatry. And then Moses withdrew to the entrance of the camp. And issued the call to come and side with the Lord. Which the Levites responded to. More of that in a moment. And then, judgment. 
The Levites were commanded to move throughout the camp and execute those still committed to their idolatry. It didn't matter if they were kith or kin. All were put to the sword. Spiritual adultery was to be eradicated from the people of God. The next day, the day after that, what a solemn day it must have been. Moses again confronted the people with their great sin. Verse 33 times, great sin. But told them that he would now return to the Lord in the hope of making atonement for them. He knew that God had previously accepted his intercessions and had reprieved the nation from extinction. And he had come down and he had put an end to the people's rebellion. He had purged sin from the camp. But did the people still have a future with God? Would he still have them as his own special people? Would he still take them forward to their inheritance as he had originally said he would? That was what Moses' second act of intercession secured. And again we note Moses' personal loyalty to his people. He would not be separated from them. Verse 32, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. What amazing words. He will perish with the people if God casts them off. And in response, the Lord tells him that he will, at the appropriate time, blot out those who sinned. But he will yet bring the people to their promised inheritance. Sending his angel before them to ensure their safe arrival there. How grateful Israel ought to have been for the intercessions of Moses. And yet, even those powerful and prevailing intercessions are eclipsed by those of the Lord Jesus for his people. Because of his intercessions for us, we will never experience the judgment of God. We will never be cast off. We shall undoubtedly safely arrive in our glorious inheritance. For Jesus himself guarantees our arrival there. I want to finish by briefly mentioning the Levites. The actions of the Levites. This was a day of deep significance for the Levites. Verse 29, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. That first phrase there, you have been set apart, is literally, you have filled your hands. And it is the language of consecration. And Moses interprets the actions of the Levites against the apostates as a sort of installation sacrifice accompanying the beginning 
of their service for God. And I want us to note three things very quickly about the stand that the Levites took. Each of which must be reproduced in our lives today. The first thing is this. They stood apart. Surrounded as they were by idolatry and immorality. The Levites made their way to Moses. Standing at the entrance to the camp. They refused to have any truck with the people's apostasy. They stood apart, separating themselves from those, including family members, who gave themselves over to idolatry and immorality. Now, I'm not suggesting that we ought to copy the actions of the Levites precisely. It would not be a good idea to slay our friends and family members who live in error and sin. But I am suggesting this. As God's redeemed and holy people, we must personally refuse to participate in our culture's idolatry and immorality. We must be true to our identity as God's redeemed and holy people. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 5, verses 5 to 7. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. We are called to stand apart. That's what's meant by biblical separation. We we do not belong to this idolatrous and immoral generation. Secondly, they stood for. Moses said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me, verse 26. There is really only one dividing line running through humanity. There's many, but there's only one that matters. Who is on the Lord's side? And let me bring that forward into a New Testament context. Luke 14, verse 25 to 27 Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You see, Jesus demands the exclusive loyalty of his people. What that passage is teaching is this, that our relationship with him trumps every other relationship. Every other relationship, no matter how close. And that means that not only that we separate ourselves from 
our culture's idolatry and immorality, but also that we stand positively for the Lord. We present an alternative to the people around us, a life that is lived in fellowship with God, an attractive and fulfilled life, and a life that is being continually transformed by the grace of God. We live our lives for God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. They stood apart. They stood for, and finally they stood against. See, there's a third aspect to the Levites' actions that we must not miss. Yes, they stood apart from the idolatry and immorality of their peers. Yes, they stood for the Lord, choosing to live their lives in obedience to him. But by adopting both those stances, it placed the Levites in a further unavoidable stance. There simply was no ducking or dodging their responsibility to confront, and in their case to execute, those who were defiling the people by perverting the truth and promoting immorality. And if ever there was a description of the cultural moment that we find ourselves in as believers, that has got to be it. Of course, the weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. We must never resort to physical force or ungodly methods in our stand for God and his truth. But we need to be prepared to challenge and confront those who would lead God's people, and particularly the upcoming generations, into a perversion of Christianity that seeks to baptize all sorts of beliefs and behaviors that are in direct contradiction of God's word. There's no neutrality in this battle. There's no spiritual Switzerland available to us. Silence is not an option. The stakes are too high. We must defend the faith and stand against those who would seek to destroy it, particularly from within. As we finish... Could we ask God just in our hearts now to give us the grace that we need to stand apart from the idolatry and immorality that surrounds us? To stand for the Lord and positively live our lives for Him and where necessary, 
and when necessary, to stand against those who would pervert the truth and attempt to lead God's redeemed people into ungodliness. That's my prayer as we finish our study. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.